0: Hey everyone and welcome to the Split Take Podcast. This is Jacob, your co-host speaking to you from the present or technically the past when you're listening to this and also from the future from the perspective of when Chandler and I originally recorded this episode. We actually recorded it back in November 2020 which will become immediately apparent within the first couple seconds of the episode. So apologies for the delay I guess but does it matter? I mean in like couple months it doesn't matter when any of these are released anyway so in this episode we're going to be talking about a bunch of different movies we had been watching back in october and november so like halloween stuff some uh korean movies i think and then eventually we're going to be getting on to a review of the anime tv show full metal alchemist brotherhood which i recommended to chandler a while back and he uh, graciously watched the whole thing for me it's one of my favorite tv shows and i was very excited to hear what chandler uh thought about it and maybe too excited because i I didn't really have too much to say uh so oh well but anyway i think it's a still a pretty good conversation and uh, i hope you enjoy next episode we will be discussing blade runner on with the show we are live we're live from central park it's split take with chandler and
1: jacob central They don't even do the show from Central Park. I don't know what you're referencing. I don't
0: I don't know either. It just sounded like the correct thing to say in a reference to something. I don't know what I was referencing.
1: Look, if you say so.
0: I do. I did.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. How are you? How was Thanksgiving? Well, I still couldn't taste. That's fine. uh, Pretty much everybody in my house has COVID. And no one's really feeling symptomatic anymore, aside from the coughing and not being able to taste anything. I had the I had a good amount of food, but I stopped myself from gorging because there's literally no point. So you just you had the Thanksgiving meal, you just couldn't taste it. Yeah, maybe? yeah, I could smell it. Um, my smell is pretty much hundred percent back. So that's even worse when you smell how good all the food smells and you can't taste it. But at least you can I'm, smell I gotta, it. Yeah, I got a test tomorrow at nine in the morning, so we'll see. Hopefully, I'm done. But the fact that I still can't taste leads me to believe that is not the case. Fingers crossed. One one of these days you'll be set free. At least until the next time. One quick update. Uh, I did purchase one more thing I bought from Barnes & Noble for the Criterion Cell. I bought Ghost Dog, uh, but I bought it online. And when I bought it online, they sent me a shipping number that I could, you know, in the email, I can track my package via the shipping number. So I clicked the link in that email and I copy and paste the tracking number into the little search bar. And then they tell me that the tracking number is invalid. So I'm kind of just waiting to see if they actually deliver it. And if not, I'm going to have to, I guess, talk to people again. How soon after you ordered it did you check? So right after. And then I have checked multiple times since then. And I ordered it about a week ago. Really? Yeah. Fascinating. I'm
0: going to assume you're going to get it. And they just I, gave I you a think so. Tracking too. number. Uh, quite often I'll, I'll receive tracking numbers that don't work yet. Yeah. And then I wait like a day or two and then they work.
1: I'm 99% sure it won't work, but I'm going to check anyways. But yeah, that's where I'm at. I'll, 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 I did the same thing I've been doing last week, which is just lay in bed in sweats and watch movies. And, but we'll get to that. But before, <laughs> yeah. that was your Thanksgiving.
0: Oh, my Thanksgiving was, uh, was very good. It was pretty low-key, just me and my mom here at home. All the traditional stuff that you could think of. Pumpkin pie, turkey, K- cranberries.
1: Okay. K- stuff oh, you. here we go. Now it's working. What's up? Ah, huzzah. Um it is in Tolleson, Arizona as of today. So quick Thanksgiving hot takes here. Maybe Thanksgiving sure. split takes. Uh I hate pumpkin pie.
0: Have you have you ever tried it with an ungodly amount
1: of whipped cream?
0: Yes, because that is how I like pumpkin pie and I cannot stand pumpkin
1: pie if there's if it's just by itself. Really? Interesting. Um, I maybe I'll have to do an, a more ungodly amount. But like maybe pumpkin not. pie I, to me is something that I really wish I would like because I, I love the smell of it. I love the look of it. I love its seasonal, his uh, seasonality. And I love that it goes with whipped cream. But then I just taste it and I'm just disgusted. I don't agree, but I understand more than
0: most people. Do, do you sympathize?
1: Driving. That's what I'm asking for. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I'm not big on the taste of pumpkin pie by itself. I like whipped cream. What about the other Thanksgiving
1: food? You look like you'd be a green bean casserole kind of guy.
0: I don't think I've uh, I've had green bean casserole, but it has only been at other people's houses and I don't remember it well. It's just too gross to me. I think 2 or 3 years ago I went to I was up in Ashland, Oregon, visiting my dad for Thanksgiving and we went to a house there they were having a vegan Thanksgiving potluck and there was like 50 people at the house was the most interesting experience I've ever had. And I think I might have had a green bean casserole there, but I cannot honestly remember. So I couldn't say I like I basically have not had a green bean hmm.
1: casserole. I don't like green beans and I don't know if I don't like casseroles, but the, the sound of a casserole sounds disgusting. I don't like the word. Oh, I like casseroles. Casserole. It implies a, a homogeny that doesn't sound appetizing. Oh, well. <laughs> One of these days, maybe I'll make you a casserole, a good casserole. It's just it's food inspired product. Oh, my God. You want to know something crazy? So completely unrelated. Well, it is it is related to what we're about to do. But uh, I'm, I'm I just I'm sitting here. I have my laptop, which is where I usually record this podcast. And on my laptop behind me is my desktop. So I'm looking at my monitor. I had steam open and I'm just I'm I'm. Steam is open and I'm the th- thing that it's open to right now is one of my friends on Steam and uh, I'm just going to send you a profile picture or a picture of his profile picture on Steam. I just sent you on Snapchat of, of like the 80 friends. I have this one came up first.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's Major General Armstrong. <laughs> who we will talk about in depth extensive later in this episode,
1: extensive.
0: Yeah. So I got a few more things for the Criterion uh, Barnes and Noble sale.
1: I feel like last time you said you were done.
0: <laughs> did Okay. I sent a Snapchat to the group and I feel like no one, it didn't go through or something because a good six hours later, no one had opened it, or at least it said no one had opened it. What was it of? Uh, it was of the Coker Trilogy. No, we didn't. I did not get that. Oh, fascinating. So I got the Coker Trilogy. Oh, okay. And in that Snapchat, I sent to the group chat, which I apparently never went. Uh, I said, this is my final purchase of the sale. So were you lying into the ether? That was a fucking <laughs> lie. That was the third <laughs> fucking lie of the sale. Because I said I was done before this and then I got this. And then life today and I, got I got something else. Uh, life does find a way. I found out that Fa- Francis Ha was not on Netflix anymore. So, oh, so, uh,
1: OK. He did it. I was feeling a rewatch. Did you you rewatch it? I saw that you like completely redid your Letterbox profile. Oh yeah, I just I did uh, redid it again. I feel like kind of. I I added. No matter how many times you redo your Letterbox profile, f for fake always comes back. I feel like I've seen f for fake under. It hasn't been. It hasn't been on there for a while. Well, hey, never mind. That's. I should get that. I was thinking about getting one more too, and f for fake is looking very appealing. It is nice. I need something short. <laughs> I'm done with three hour movies. <laughs> yeah, I can understand. We'll, we'll get to that, too. Effer
0: Fake is also uh, entirely on YouTube. It is. For those who have not seen it. Which is
1: ironic because it is essentially a YouTube essay. I know a lot of people bring that up. So
0: you can watch Orson Welles' best film uh, for free. I'm making a face. I didn't mean that literally. I, I was poking.
1: Oh, okay well that's the thing. being controversial uh, the, a reason i'm making the face is because part of me agrees part of me does too but but also part of me disagrees it's a three-way tie if
0: i'm being honest what is it th- what's the third magnificent ambersons
2: oh
0: <laughs> it's just so interesting it, it is interesting but the actual movie we
1: we have a whole
0: episode. i enjoy watching it yeah all the way through i enjoy watching it
1: okay I will say the last time I watched it, I wasn't as I wasn't as awestruck at the 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 audacity of the third act as I was the first time.
0: I don't know if you saw, but I I watched a film by the butcher of Magnificent Ambersons, Robert Wise. I did not. Robert Wise, by the way, I I think I might have mentioned this in our Magnificent Ambersons review, but can't hurt to to repeat. Uh, The studio kind of forced him to make the cuts they wanted, so. In a way, you can blame him for the lost footage of Magnus and Ambersons. And uh, he did it to curry favor with the studio So, because he wanted to become a director in his own right. Mm. And he went on to direct things like The Sound of Music, which I usually watch once a year with my mom around Thanksgiving.
1: Interesting. I have never seen The Sound of Music, but I have seen the play. Really? The play is lovely.
0: Well, the mo- the movie's just that, too. Oh, okay. It's lovely. It's, if I was being more honest, it, it might be like a four-star thing, but... I go back and forth between five and four and a half. It's all about how you feel. Well, some more than others. Some I'm willing to be charitable, more charitable than I should with quality,
1: and some I'm less charitable than I, than like I should Like Shark Tale. Sure. <laughs> Shark Tale was unironically my introduction to Martin Scorsese. <laughs> interesting. His DNA Very is all interesting. over that. All right, so what have you been watching? Oh, well, should we get to the big one or should I, should I dance around the big one first?
0: Oh, <laughs> you know, I want to try something new. OK, Can we try something new. Sure. What if we were to go back and forth? Sure. Like I talk about one thing that I watched then you talk about one thing and then a bit more kind of a, a back and forth. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Than our, uh, OK, cool.
1: Well, I mean, I, I talked about uh, sound of music. Oh then I'll just uh give give a quick little cuz I watched a lot of stuff. So I'll give you just a quick like three movies. I'm not going to mention everything that I, okay. I watched. Well, I rewatched uh both Naked and The Apartment. It was a double feature, <laughs> which is not a great double feature, but they're both great movies. Um and then I watched the new uh Anish Chaganti movie Run, who's the guy who did Searching? Ah, how was Run? Run is uh so Run is like It's it's good and bad at the same time in that what it's doing, the story is so efficient, is a very simple, straightforward story. And the filmmaking does not waste a second of your time. It is structurally sound. It's like the perfect 90 minutes. It's constantly moving. But when you look at what the story is, I could tell you the premise of the story and you would know exactly how it turns out before I even finished the sentence. It is oh. not at all in the least bit surprising, shocking or anything. It's exactly what you think it's going to be, but it's done so well and so efficiently that I can't say it's a bad movie. It's just completely predictable. But there's a lot of craft there.
0: One of these days I'll need to steal your Hulu so I can watch that
1: it's it's 90 minutes. Uh, it has Sarah Paulson, who is like the greatest actress who keeps getting the worst shit. I really like her, but in everything she's in is just maybe I'm just salty about the Ratchet series. I think that's what it is, because she's the one is who that plays, what she's the main the lead in that. She plays Ratchet. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah, that's what I watched. So you go ahead now.
0: I made a promise to myself. I think I'm going to try to finish the the big Berg box. Ingmar Bergman by the end of the year. If possible, which I think it might be, and I am now halfway through that, so there's 15 more to go. Mm-hmm. About kind of started this whole binge with the Pharaoh document, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. I always anything foreign. I feel like I'm mispronouncing constantly.
1: This is uh, possible, probable, even.
0: They're the the I think the only two documentaries on there. Uh, but in 1970, he Ingmar Bergman lived on the island of Pharaoh, which is off the coast of Sweden and filmed a good many of his, of his movies on that Island. So he made two documentaries, 10 years apart about the Island and the people on the Island. And they're fine. (laughs) The issue with both of them is that they are so incredibly niche. Like this is clearly a passion project from Ingmar Bergman. Yeah. Like he was like, I really love everyone on this Island. And I'm going to make a documentary about them and not bother to explain anything to anyone because I'm making this for me. And so you, you watch it and you get it's mostly like it's interviews with the people, a few of the islanders and with B-roll of them doing mundane stuff around the island, like shearing a sheep, putting up a barn, doing stuff like that. And honestly, the footage of them doing stuff is the most interesting parts. The, the interviews
1: were kind of dull. Uh, sorry people of pharaoh (laughs) so you'd much rather listen to or much rather watch them shear sheeps than talk about their life story i'd much i would much rather ingmar show me their life story rather (laughs) than tell me
0: their life story (laughs) some of the interviews were okay uh it just overall i think it wasn't particularly well paced or like i'm not sure who it was for because like it's so incredibly niche and it's not one of those things that like transcends like something that's so personal that it becomes universal. It's not one of those things. Yeah. And I actually, so the second Pharaoh document, which is just the most interesting title of all time. Am I right? Pharaoh document. <coughs> it, it, you instantly want to watch it, don't you? It's very ambiguous. It sounds epic. But the second one from 1979 is, was a lot better because it used a lot more just footage of people doing stuff. Yeah. And I was reminded of the... um Leviathan from like 2012, the Russian one, and then Sweet, no, not that one. Oh, the other one, yes. And Sweetgrass, okay, <coughs> um, which are both by the same filmmakers. And Leviathan's about fishermen off the coast of uh, in New England, and it's just like an hour and a half of them fishing, but well done. Uh, and Sweetgrass is about uh, cattle herders in rural Montana, that is honestly really really great. And it reminded me of that. And it was like this is this is why I know for sure that I like. Just show me the stuff they're doing, the mundane stuff. That's how like it's interesting. It's it's the more visually appealing. Your your stories are dull. People of <laughs> Pharaoh, your your lives are interesting, just not the way you tell them.
1: Well, similarly, I have. Um, uh, I finally went through and I watched all of the uh, films included. In Martin Scorsese's short film collection, released by Criterion early this year, and similar similarly, he has two short films on here of the five. Two of them are just forty minute documentaries. Um, one of them is uh, a guy he knew named Stephen Prince, who was a roadie for um, Neil Young. And uh, it's literally just 40 minutes of Martin Scorsese and a bunch of other people just like sitting around. And this guy, Stephen Prince, is telling all these crazy stories. And it's one of those things where. Like, if you were in the room. It would be a great night because he's a very odd man, <laughs> a lot of really weird stories. But because you're, it's just a movie and you're just it's just a documentary where you watch him tell these stories. No accompanying visuals. It's literally just everybody in a room listening to his stories. Um, it's not that interesting. Uh, but funnily enough, so the kid Stephen Prince, he's actually in a few Martin Scorsese's movies. Um, he plays the gun dealer and taxi driver
2: mm-hmm.
1: when uh Travis Bickle buys the gun. Um, he's in another movie, I don't remember, but funny funny enough. I'm going to quickly recall one of his stories and see if it sounds familiar to you. Uh, he apparently was super into heroin in the late 60s, and he had a dealer friend who he was lounging around with them. and uh, a girl was dropped off at his house, and she had OD'd on heroin. So to revive her, they had to shoot a shot of adrenaline into her chest, but they had to do it very precisely, so... The dealer friend of his had to make a little Sharpie X on her chest and he jammed it in her. It's too that, sp- that
0: that's that that's uh Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so no, the whole time shit, I'm yeah. watching it, I'm like, okay, I don't really find this interesting, but obviously somebody, at least one person out there, found it interesting enough to rip the story completely word for word and put it in one of the best movies ever made. So do with that what you will. Uh, the other short films, it's... it. So, the, there's two documentary short films. One was called American Boy, A Profile of Stephen Prince. That's one I just told you about. The other one was actually really, really good. It was just called Italian American. It's literally just a documentary about Martin Scorsese sitting down and talking with his parents. And the parents give him the whole immigrant story, how, you know, differences between Italy and here and how they grew up. And you... Uh, Martin Scorsese's mom is in a lot of his movies. You remember her from any of them?
0: I'm sure I've seen her.
1: She, in Goodfellas, she's, the, she's uh, uh, Joe Pesci's mom. So when they go and they have Billy Bats in the trunks, so they're having spaghetti at like two in the morning and she has the painting. She, ta- you know, yeah, She's a lovely woman. She's in a lot of Martin Scorsese's movies. And it's just a 40 minute documentary of Marty's old, charming Italian parents just talking, being old. It's cute if 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 you have an affinity for one of your grandparents, it's just like it's 40 minutes of just listening to a grandparent speak it. But his parents are awesome. So it wasn't bad. And the other three short films, two of them, one of them was called It's Not Just You, Murray. Um, and another one is called What's a Nice Girl Like You Doing in a Place Like This? Two not good, very, very just boring short films that inspired me because I thought, OK, so even he made. Overly long student films that thought they were about something but were really about nothing. That's great. And then another one. I did this too. (laughs) And then the last one was called The Big Shave. It's just a minute and a half and it's actually really, really good. So here's
0: my question. So uh, as soon as uh, I think you were just about to get to it, but I'm going to voice the question anyway. So Criterion released Scorsese Shorts. And obviously it's a bunch of short films. It's not a feature film. Is it worth you know if you're getting it on like a half off sale to get Scorsese's usual.
1: Yes. It is because it has the five short films. Altogether it's like it's about it's about 130 minutes of film. If you combine the length of all cuz it's like two 20 minute short films, two 40 minute short films, and then like a 2 minute short film. That alone makes it kind of worth it, but the two there's a few other supplements, but one that I really really like that I've watched like three times, it's literally just um Criterion recorded a conversation between the Safdie brothers and Ari Aster just talking about Mm -hmm. these five short films. it's one of those things that made me appreciate them a little more. Still don't really like most of them, but it's it's fascinating because, again, compared with, you know, that paired with the story that Tarantino ripped off, it's obvious that a lot of aspiring filmmakers got a lot out of these short films. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting to hear that. And I topped it all off by watching Taxi Driver. Taxi driver's great. Good movie. Is it, hey, it's a great so movie. So I've heard. Uh, yeah, that was. we'll get to a few more, but you
2: go ahead.
0: Yes. So I watched what is considered kind of a trilogy of Ingmar Bergman movies that isn't really Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and The Silence, just like the faith trilogy or whatever they oh, call okay. it. They're all about faith. Uh, what do you know? through i've seen two of them before i've seen through a glass darkly before and winter light before through a glass have you seen through a glass darkly no you've seen winter light though
1: i have twice
0: okay through a glass darkly is fine it's a good it's one of like the good middle ground ingmar bergen films where you're just getting into a good movie something great something bad uh can't can't really go wrong little uh I don't want to say melodramatic, but maybe honestly, after watching it twice, I still don't know quite what I think about it. So, mm. eh, a tad disappointing, but not not in any way that that matters. Uh, Winter Light. This is my second viewing. I, I am seriously contemplating giving it five stars because I think it. I love Winter Really, Light. it went up a whole lot in my uh, estimation in on my upon my second viewing. Part of that was just because. I think I probably just watched it at the wrong time, whenever I got it the first time around. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I've read some of the Ingmar Bergman stuff, watched some supplemental material before I watched it to kind of get into the the headspace of the film before I started it. And it just the dialogue, everything, the way it's shot. It's one of the few times, you know, Ingmar Bergman does Godard, (laughs) uh, if we're going to bring him up, which I think we should obligatory every episode you have to Uh, Godard likes to just kind of like spout philosophy, have his characters just talk a lot about stuff they think and believe in. And sometimes it works and sometimes it's just boring as hell. Uh, And no one cares, (laughs) but (laughs) Ingmar Bergman more often than not does the same thing. Has his characters often talk about their views on life, religion, all that kind of stuff. And it works more often than not uh, in comparison with uh, Goddard. And I think Winterlight might be his, the best example of just like people monologuing about what they think and how they, they respond to God. Yeah. Faith, godlessness, all, all these kinds the of things. Silence the, of God. the whole. Yeah. The, the film is surprisingly nuanced. Like, I feel like you could be a very religious person and watch it and feel vindicated you could be an atheist and watch and feel there's yeah. something for you it it, it it's not definitive. it's kind of a dialectic it's yeah it's just a conversation essentially about all these things and no, no definitive answers are put forward as to no if something exists
1: but rather this this priest just kind of trying to come to terms with his See, I I feel like the difference between the way uh, Bergman does it and the way Goddard does it is that Godard puts these complicated ideas and philosophies into characters that you feel are completely disconnected because he doesn't write characters. He thinks characters no. are stylistic devices, but because you don't understand who these people are when they start rambling about philosophy, it doesn't sound genuine to who they are. Whereas Bergman's movies like the characters feel real and the philosophies are Tied to who they are and what is happening, especially in Winterlight. Uh, and now I'm yeah. curious um, you, what you should do since you've rewatched Winterlight. Uh, you should also, when was the last time you saw First Reformed?
0: <laughs> since the first time I watched it. I'll, I'll give it a rewatch soon.
1: Because First Reformed is one of those things where the only thing that I really don't like about First Reformed is just how heavily it leans on Winterlight. There's a lot of similarities to Winterlight. It's almost like his version of Winterlight. Which I think is fine. Yeah, uh, I, I've come around to it because he does a lot with it that's different. But I feel like if there's any time where you, you should rewatch it, might as well do it while Winter Light's fresh in your head. But yeah, that's probably... I agree. I think that's my favorite Bergman. I know I have Seventh Seal, got the five stars, and this one doesn't, but... The more, that's the one I think about the most. It's the one I've watched the most times. I highly recommend it to anyone who likes philosophy
0: on film. And what about the third one? A similarity between, I was thinking of uh, First Reformed when I watched a different Bergman film. This is kind of jumping ahead, uh, but I watched The Virgin Spring. No review here. The interesting thing is I, I finished the film. And I was like, wow, I would really like to write a Western version of this because I feel like it would translate
2: it really well.
1: It exists what virgin spring the virgin spring wait no i think the virgin suicides yeah yeah that which one I, I
0: i too thought of as well <laughs> uh but the only similarity there is the word virgin enough about the virgin spring uh, <laughs> the silence which is aptly named because there is barely any dialogue in it at all and oh, it is one of the most interesting bergman films i was very worried uh you know, worried but going into it, I wasn't sure if I was going to like it. Bergman is kind of hit or miss sometimes when he really tries to explore new areas. Um, and that's just often it's just me and the first time it doesn't hit right and I need to watch it a second time like mm-hmm. Winter Light. But I was worried I was going to watch. I knew going in that there was very little dialogue and I was worried that I was just going to watch like almost two hours of, of boring uh, Bergman stuff. which I was pleasantly surprised was not the case. And it is, I'm not sure how to describe why I found it so engaging, Um, but Bergman specifically set out to make a film that was a visual film because he was very much aware of how much his movies rely on characters talking and talking a lot. And so he purposely made this movie to do something very different. Um, obviously in a, in his very specific way. So it feels very Bergman E, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it is just people wandering and people looking and observing things. <laughs> and it sounds kind of boring, but I really liked it. And I need, I'm going to give it like maybe a year and I'm going to go back to it. Cause I think it, I did, I didn't quite know what it was getting at. Mm hmm. All I knew that I, I was pleasantly surprised by it. So I'm going to need to revisit it at
1: some point. Hmm. Uh, so I did a little research just now. The movie I was thinking of was not The Virgin Spring. It was uh, Last House on the Left. <laughs>
0: yes. Because they're both. Which is a horror film. Yeah. Which I also. I, I've never seen it, but I looked up the plot just to make sure that I was not going on a similar. Yeah.
1: They, they're, they're, they both. Uh, yeah. They both started the same way. So that's why I got it mixed up. But yeah. Uh, I watched, so I'm just going to go through these. I got f- uh, a few more here. I'll go through quick and then we'll get to the big one. Um, I rewatched Gone Girl. Cause I'm, I'm trying to watch a bit of David Fincher before the new one. Gone Girl's fucking awesome. I <laughs> go- love Gone Girl.
0: Gone Girl, I think is one of the most underrated movies of the last decade.
1: I feel like that's what happens with all of David Fincher's good ones. Like Zodiac, when it came out, people are like, this is pretty good. But now people are like it's a masterpiece. Same thing as doing with social network. And Gone Girl feels similarly prophetic to the social network because at the time, the social network was like, OK, interesting look at this thing that we don't really know about. But then 10 years later, you look and you realize that David Fincher knew what was going to happen all along. There's a lot of stuff that is more true than it is uh, more true now than it was back then, specifically regarding the like the marketability of information and Mark Zuckerberg and how he plays into all that. Uh, Gone Girl is similar. Um, Because it feels very Me Too, you know, Me Too movement, despite coming out like three or four years before that. Yes. But in a
0: very twisted
1: way. Yes. And I I know a lot of people who don't like where the story goes. I still think if I had one complaint, the like. It's a little too long. Quick spoiler, jump ahead in like 20 seconds, but when um. Rosamund Pike I forget her character's name comes back um, you expect the movie to end pretty shortly after that but then there's a little bit about them moving back in together and then uh, Ben Affleck is trying to find a way out of this redone relationship with his wife and his sister and everyone are trying to get on his side and he's going to the police trying to see if we can like catch her for because she like admitted to what all that she did and trying to pin it on her and then She gets pregnant and then it's just it. It it moves so efficiently up to that point, and you see pretty much every angle to the story, but it still goes on for like another 15 minutes. That's my only complaint, but it is amazing. I'd say like.
0: I like through and through love Gone Girl. It's one of my favorite movies, and I don't think you can take anything out but I would kind of agree that it might go on a little too long and it might just be like a bit over time. Like it, it's a cumulative cumulative thing. Yeah. We're like, it's not like the ending I think is important. Mm-hmm. Everything that is there. And for me, every time I watch it, it works and I'm there all the way through, but I understand that kind of, um, cause you get the climax. It's a bit of a return of the King kind of thing. <laughs> you yeah. get, you get your payoffs and then there's a bit more because technically the story and the resolution hasn't quite been resolved but it feels like it's been resolved yeah but it's a it's you you get the superficial uh, resolution first and then it takes its time giving you the actual kind of relationship resolution which most movies kind of put those things together yeah and have it less so spread out
1: because i think i think the reason that it doesn't work as well for me is because i feel like Gone Girl is about a lot of things, um. But to what it what the most fascinating thing about it to me is it's sort of like no holds barred portrayal of like the media circus and how little things like him taking a picture with some girl or him like smiling for one camera in front of the sign of his missing wife, how one little mm-hmm. lapse in judgment can turn into be spun into this you know huge media artillery against you. That's the stuff that was more interesting to me. So then towards the end, when it becomes less about that and more about the micro level stuff, just how she's manipulating people and how her her scheme is working, it becomes a little simple comparatively. Sure. Um, but I agree that everything that is being shown at that point is necessary and it does have things to say beyond that. Um, it's just that I find the other stuff more interesting. But the filmmaking is just. Oh, nice. that's fair enough. Oh. God, I'd you know, if you want to do this for Mank, we can talk about this too. But I, this is good. And David Fincher's, um, he, his commentaries are hilarious.
2: <laughs> David oh, Fincher's a very check funny Check them man. out then. Is there uh, one for
1: Gone Girl? There is one. He's done one for like all of them except for Alien 3. <laughs> he, did, he did not record a commentary for Alien 3. I wonder why. Yeah,
2: well, you know, all right, what do you got? Uh, I got two more. Three more, I guess, but I'll be short. Mm -hmm.
0: Watched two more. Mike Lee. Life is sweet. Meantime, we've discussed Mike Lee. And I think these you've discussed those two before on the podcast.
1: Oh, you you discussed life is sweet last time, but you did not discuss meantime.
0: No, life is sweet last time. No, you discussed like we were talking
1: Minecraft.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's what (laughs) it was. Life is sweet.
0: Life is sweet fun little quirky film but it didn't really transcend anything uh to become like one of his better films and uh it was kind of uh parts of it were a little cringe uh kind of on purpose but uh, i wasn't necessarily there for for some of the uh timothy spall was giving a great performance but He's his great. character in particular is like i don't want to look at you
1: <laughs> uh, i mean meantime let's, was let's also be fair yeah. timothy spall is just an interesting looking man
2: <laughs> yeah
0: yeah, well, yeah, good. late 80s, 90s fashion. Well, that's all <laughs> i <I'll> say.
1: <laughs> Terrible. Uh,
0: meantime was likewise fine. Um, I didn't really find myself all that engaged with the characters as I normally am with yeah. Mike Lee. And I think Tim Roth gave a really great performance. Like a really great, like I believed yeah. that character, but I wasn't always interested in what the character was doing. Um, and I I felt like a lot of it was kind of stagnant. The film, the the storytelling itself, and like looking back, I'm like, what really happened over the course of those two hours? I remember like the last half hour really well. Yeah, when they he goes to uh,
1: I remember his Aunt's
0: house and all that.
1: Well, how you also got to talk about Gary Oldman.
0: <laughs> we <We're> almost unrecognizable <laughs> Gary Oldman.
1: <laughs> I feel like you say that with every Gary Oldman role. No one know, actually I'm knows gonna make what Gary a note. Oldman looks like.
0: I'm gonna make a note. Every podcast where we bring up Gary Oldman, I can't recognize him. <laughs> we're gonna be talking about an interview that Gary Oldman has had. I
1: couldn't recognize him. The, the real, the real twist is gonna be uh, Gary Oldman was Tilda Swinton the whole time. <laughs> Have you ever seen him in a movie together? That's all I'm saying. You got
0: me. You got. I think you're onto something there, dude. <laughs> you were saying something about meantime.
1: Oh, yeah. So the only things I remember from Meantime... Meantime was one of those things where I was watching it. Uh, I was watching it my first quarantine. I just remember being really bored until the end. Um, But then, like, for some reason... Because I watched, like, four Mike Lee movies in a single day. And Meantime was the Mm -hmm. one I kept thinking about the most. I don't know why. All I remember is the ending. I remember um, them going to the unemployment office. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one thing I remember is uh, the... I think he's like the window replacement man, Peter White, who is in a bunch of other Mike Lee movies. And I just always feel so bad because in meantime he's younger, slender. He's kind of a good looking guy, and then you see him in All or Nothing, and you're just like, "Oh no, <laughs> what happened?"
0: He was a method actor. He did it for Mike Lee. I hope that's the case.
1: Well, because he's in he's in All or Nothing, and he's great in All or Nothing. Well, is it All or Nothing? And he's
0: in Another Year.
1: Yeah, and that's what I'm thinking of. There's think another year. Too. The one with Leslie Manville. Yeah. Where he's yes. just big and sweaty.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: But he's yes. also in uh, Naked. He's the security guard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Security guard. Yeah. But Great uh, that yeah. Too. I see in the meantime, it's like, oh, he's so good looking here. What what happened? <laughs> but yeah, I like Meantime. It's fine. It's the it's the only Mike Lee I don't have. I was considering blind buying it, and I'm glad I didn't. So, yeah, well. It's always worth it just to hear Mike Lee talk. Though. I'm going to get it just because I have the other three Mike Lee Criterions, and I feel like I have to get it at this point.
0: I find myself more and more like gravitating towards Criterions that like directors. I already own a bunch. Yeah. Do you have all the lynches? No, you don't have a racer head. I do not. No,
2: mm.
0: no, I have a racer head. I don't have blue velvet. Oh, OK, so
1: you have and
0: now uh, elephant man.
2: Oh, OK, That's I don't have that.
1: Uh, so I watched another one. Um, I'll go quick these last few, well, not all of them. I literally just finished like an hour or two ago. Barry Lyndon is on
0: the uh, BFI list.
1: Sight and Sound. We'll get to it eventually. So initial yes. thoughts. Well, so I'm I'm excited to revisit it. Initial thoughts is it is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. I mean, God, it's just gorgeous. Everything about it. Um, it, it's got it, it's more than anything more than anything i've seen from kubrick his framing is the most like portrait like in this not only in just the the composition and the framing and the blocking but the the lighting i know that's a big thing that people talk about is how he like had to invent new lenses with different f-stops just to get all this natural lighting in and that stuff is interesting and the thing is like the the look of it feels very constructed but the actual story feels equally constructed in a way that it feels contrived, where I guess it's because it's it's a it's more character oriented than most of his stuff. It's essentially a three hour character study of this guy. And he this movie feels very distant and clinical, like a lot of Kubrick's movies do. But as opposed to something like Dr. Strangelove, where the sort of removed nature of it makes it even funnier. It doesn't really work when you're doing such a close examination of a character because I never really got an understanding of who the character was. I didn't really find him interesting enough to want to think more about him. So towards the end, like the, the last half, it's like a literal rise and fall split straight down the middle between part one and part two. And all of the part two stuff, there's like an air of tragedy to it all that I don't feel was really deserved because the character he's not some great character who falls on tragedies he's kind of an asshole and an opportunist from the beginning so the only difference between part one and part two is that it's starting to blow up in his face and i guess i don't really find the rise and fall really in service of anything larger to say so it's really good and it's a technical marvel but it's too distance for me for to praise it for anything else
0: yeah the first time i watched it i wasn't particularly engaged with it like i watched the whole thing uh through in one sitting a lot of pausing uh, yeah same i i wasn't sure what it was getting at or what the whole like point of it was because i i think i would also have agreed with you about the seeming lack of character or, or maybe theme uh over the, the whole narrative yeah to, to really justify all of that. Uh and right now I I cannot think of uh, the proper argument uh for the film against that idea. But all I can say is that on my second viewing I was much more engaged uh with okay. the film. And it like for a three-hour film for some reason it was just like wow. I enjoyed watching all three hours of it the second
1: well time. yeah that's the thing is it is okay. <laughs> I I mean, I can compare it to another three hour movie I just watched right before this. But this three hour movie, every scene had a clear beginning, middle and end. And every like on a scene to scene level, it was very entertaining. Like there's a lot going on in every scene, but I just I never felt all those scenes together made anything.
0: One of the, the biggest selling points, I think, beyond what you think of characters, Kubrick and all that. It is one of the best depictions of that historical era yes in europe Uh, i don't think it's really it doesn't really have any competition i think no
1: yeah because the whole time i was watching this uh, this is what the 1700s early 1700s somewhere around there yeah i think the closest i can think of is amadeus but that almost feels cheating because amadeus is so it, it takes it's a lot of interiors
0: yeah, it's contained like so, sort
1: of like topsy-turvy where it feels really, really t- detailed, but it's so limited that you can't really get the full picture.
0: Whereas very limited. this, is, this I mean, is a proper epic. This is like yeah. Lawrence of Arabia, proper epic where you get a, a, a grand scope of the time and place that it's taking <laughs> place. in.
1: Uh, now, this OK, speaking to that, there's one side effect of this that it was unintentional, I guess, but I couldn't help but laugh. So there's there's a scene early on in the movie where Barry Lyndon's in the army. And, you know, this is 18th century warfare, which is essentially line up and shoot at each other. So, you know, it's it's early in the movie when his friend from back home, who's like leading the army, gets shot and killed and he mourns mm-hmm. him and the whole time. I'm Just I'm sitting there watching. OK, he's walking. He's literally in the front of the line. This is like the third volley fire. Of course, he's going to die. He's in the front of everybody. So like when he gets shot and then Barry Lyndon's like oh no I'm like what I was laughing the <laughs> whole time because he pulls him to the side I'm like what were you expecting to happen <laughs> He's a corpulent man in the front.
0: Oh, corpulent. <laughs> there is a lot of kind of unintentional humor in Barry Lyndon that's really like deep in there, uh, but some of it is is the the colonel or the, the British officer in the beginning of the film, who is John Quinn. fight, Barry Linden. as his he, name. Sure. yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, He has a funny face. He does. That will never not be funny. Cause he's marching. And he's going like, <laughs> as he's like, he's like making weird faces as he's marching. I don't know, but it like it, when um... it, it almost, I feel like it's going for like a pointing out the ridiculousness of, uh, 18th century warfare or something
1: well it's funny because in the beginning when he challenges him to a duel over her his cousin or whatever like you know John Quinn has all his men and John Quinn's like giving him an out saying like I'll give you 10 shillings or whatever and we'll forget this ever happened and your honor will be restored then Barry Lyndon says no and John Lynn just goes his face like sort of contorts and he's very uneasy and it's funny. And then you get shot and you realize that they had like dummy bullets because <laughs> they gave Barry Lyndon the gun with like bullets that wouldn't hurt him, I guess. And he just passed out in an hour for an hour due to shock alone. It's just funny to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Lyndon. do you want good movie? Yeah,
0: great Criterion. Good. lots of yeah. lots of great. Lots of things uh, after
1: I was finished, I'm like, OK, stuffed. let's watch the special features. And I realized that the special features they're all in the second disc. The first is literally just the movie and I guess commentary maybe. But yeah, it's a really good looking criteria and I'm surprised it was Spine 897. I thought it would have been a lot earlier. Uh, now, is there anything else you want to talk about or should I get on to the big one?
0: I finished the Jacques Tati set and his filmography. I watched Parade, his last movie, which isn't even really a movie. It is literally just a circus. Film, <laughs> film's a circus, films, uh, Jacques Tati does some some fun little mime acts on stage. Cute. And it's charming, but it's it's essentially just a circus. <laughs> um, I watched I got the Coker trilogy, uh, as I mentioned before, by Abbas Kiarostami, who is quickly becoming the next director who I will probably search out many of his movies to buy. Oh, OK. Cause I do need to get certified copy at some point. Cause I love that
1: movie. Um, I will be getting that one next. I still only seen close. up.
0: I think the best designed criterion trilogy so far that I've seen is the Coker trilogy box set. The before, trilogy, I'm not talking about like content or anything wise before trilogy looks nice, but it's it just color splotches.
1: Yeah. But Fun. you also cool. open up the, the little pictures on the inside. Those are nice too they're nice too but this okay so this one's super simple
2: okay literally
0: super simple it's just like one color and it's got three little dots for the the three di- representing the three different films right of course right but the the fun comes when you open it up and you realize that each film it's like I'm going to try to show this it's like a layer cake oh and it's quite literally each film is one on top of each other and it reveals the movies underneath. It, it, it's really cool. It's well-designed. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, from a, from like a, a tactile perspective, not necessarily from like color and all that. Cause I, I can understand how like you'd, you'd like uh four trilogy or, or even eh, three colors trilogy as a good box set. But th- this was just probably the most interesting one to, to open up uh, and the best surprise. Cause I thought they were just color dots of color, but yeah.
2: They go oh, that's
0: through. Nice. It is nice. I will reserve my comments for the entire trilogy Till next time. Uh, all I will say is I think I found one of my favorite Kiarostami scenes, which is from the second film. And each, each movie. So the first film, where's the friend's house is uh, about a kid in a small village and he needs to return his friend's notebook that he accidentally took. So his friend can do his homework. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's all the film is. And the second film, is about how that village suffered during an earthquake and kiarostami visited later on to to see what the damage was and to follow up with the people and then he as he did in close-up he hired actors to recreate his journey to the village Jesus Christ! <laughs> and there's a scene in the film where he's following an old man and the old man was like this is my house uh, he, he invites the the main character who is karastami over to his house like this is my house but it's not really my house it's what the filmmaker told me was my house if you remember my house from the last film that also wasn't my house that just happened to be my house in the other film but in the way that it's very like naturalistic just kind of like blunt dialogue the way that karastami presents it uh, it wasn't that like who's over the course of like five minutes that this okay it seemed like a, th- the film very much seemed like a documentary up until that point, which he loves to do these kind of pseudo, that they're, they're narrative films, but they are, have this pseudo documentary feel to them. And they are in some respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was like the first, like pointing out that there is a, an artifice to the whole thing. Yeah, that was really interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'll speak more as to what I think about the films. Next
1: time. Uh let's do this one real quick before we get into the big one. I also watched um the piano teacher.
0: Oh, I saw that, yes.
1: Ah <laughs>
0: <laughs> another Hanukkah. That's yeah. Um an, one I need to rewatch at some point. I liked it. I just need to rewatch it at some point. And I how does one rewatch the piano teacher?
1: Yeah. That's the thing, is that um, so after this I finally am like, okay, I watched four movies. I'm only gonna make a Hanukkah ranked. And the piano teacher of the four that I've seen is my least favorite, but it's still amazing. I gave it four and a half stars. Um, yeah, that was that was rough to watch. <laughs> it was a rough watch, and not in the the way, not like a come and see kind of way. You know, <laughs> it's just like it is a very convincing portrayal, both in terms of the writing and the performance of a sociopath. Because not only, because I feel like what most people do when they they fail at making a sociopath movie is that they just show you the sociopath and you're left to make too many judgments on your own where in the piano teacher because we get so much of her home life and her mother you see the shit that she does when she's on her own but you completely understand why she's doing that because her home life sounds not terrible in the sense that it's like abusive, but she's just so controlling and in her face all the time. And it's just this weird little pathetic world that she lives in. And it is just oof, some of the things that happens. in This is just difficult. Uh, the, the best scene as far as that kind of thing goes is when um, she is watching one of her students who is the crying girl the girl who gets way too nervous when she performs and her mom has to like make her pleads, to the piano teacher to like get another shot. This girl goes and does a concert. And I guess this girl had a little uh, romantic interaction with the one student that the piano teacher is like kind of into. So the piano teacher goes into the lobby of the concert hall where all the coats are and she gets a glass on the floor and she snap snap, like steps on it and smashes it into a napkin then finds the girl who's performing her coat and pours the glass shards into her coat pocket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like ridiculous, but at the same time, I'm like, I believe it. I believe it because her mother, mother is horrible and because Isabella Hooper is a great actress. It's it's all of that. Like It's the great
0: acting and it's the way that Hanukkah writes these characters. But it's also the way he films it because so much of it just plays out in long takes. Yeah. Which is really like, if you want to know like how to make your film feel, a scene feel real, just look at a Hanukkah film. Just like, I feel like half half the battle is literally just following the characters around as they do these things. You don't even need to see their faces because it's just the reality of that situation just comes through so much better when you're just constantly with the characters. There's no editing away. It's uncomfortable, but you have to sit through it.
1: It's his devotion to realism is inspiring because I don't know, because I've seen I've seen four movies. I've seen Cache, Funny Games, the original Code Unknown and The Piano Teacher. And all four of these movies, they're really slow movies made up of a few really long takes. But they're all very engaging And I I still don't know why. I don't know how he makes them so engaging because it's on paper. It should be the most boring thing. It's not, though. It's very, very intriguing. Catches your eye. And I I feel so bad putting it at the the bottom of the four, but it's still amazing. Really good. Big, big, big recommend. Uh, Should I get into the last one or do you have anything else? Now let's let's get into the last one. Yeah. OK, so the last one is a movie that Jacob got me a while ago. Mm-hmm. He bought me this criterion for my birthday. I want to say in like 2018, maybe 2019.
0: This was before I knew we were, we were going to have to watch it for the podcast. So, I was, yeah, this is some long term thinking.
1: He, he came up with the idea for the podcast just so I could watch this movie. And that movie is Andre Rublev. Directed by the great Andre Tarkovsky. And I do say the great Andre Tarkovsky because I saw th- what <sighs> he wanted me to watch Tarkovsky for a long time. And uh, I watched Stalker and I loved Stalker. Stalker is amazing. So it gave me more confidence to watch Andre Rublev. And I got to say, I just wasn't really into it. Okay. I gave it three and a half. That was reluctant. It was more like a three, but I feel like just the sheer amount of artistry at play I couldn't award it anything less than that, but I don't know i want I'm not gonna say anything. I want you to explain why you like it because I'm curious because I feel like i'm I watched a different movie from from what you can remember. yeah, yeah.
0: I contemplated watching it yesterday <laughs> um, in preparation for this discussion. Part of it is that I'm from Russia, so I feel like this kind of spiritual connection to the <laughs> film as like one of the only good russian medieval russian uh films speaking of like barry Lyndon is like the the crowning achievement of uh enlightenment era uh europe the Andrei Lu- rublev is the essentially the only film about <laughs> uh medieval russia uh that for all practical purposes exists uh sergey eisenstein uh, some people like to think is a good director not uh, made made some interesting uh discoveries with montage but i'm just saying uh you you have to be a real film nerd to know the name Sergei Eisenstein am i wrong case in point i'm just saying that you know if it if it's that obscure how good can you really be but he made a film called uh Alexander Nevsky which is also a medieval russian uh film and it's uh, garbage thank you <laughs> This is my hot take of the uh, of the episode, uh, but as someone who is really interested in this and doesn't essentially has no content to watch, uh, that it, it, the film felt like the uh, a soap opera version of medieval yeah. Russia, uh, and Andre Tarkovsky, not Andre Tarkovsky, <laughs> Andre Rublev. Despite the fact that it is filled with itself, filled with uh, historical inaccuracies, still feels very much
1: like a it definitely medieval feels legit. It it feels detailed and researched because everyone in this movie is disgusting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Although it's a bit more of a hodgepodge of Russian history, like yeah, he's just putting pulling together events that didn't necessarily take place all at the same time. The the look of it is pretty accurate, mostly because they haven't updated their monasteries uh, since the medieval <laughs> days. So just here's to show up and as far as camera.
1: historical inaccuracies go. Here's one I was curious about the the hot air balloon at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, could. was that possible back then? I don't know. Because right away, that was one of those things where I'm like, this is like supposed to be the 15th century, isn't it? That feels a little early.
0: I think no know as to your your opinion on this. <laughs> uh, I think it is possible. I'm not sure it's possible in that in in that area. Well, they definitely I, sold I, it. I feel the hot air balloon was invented around then. Yeah. But in a different part of Europe and the people here would probably not have had that the the know how to well, do that. Well they definitely sold
1: it because it looked like it was made out of a cow hides.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: that much uh, i get it
0: as kiwu says in parasite it's metaphorical (laughs) there's a lot of metaphor in this film a lot of symbolism it is a oh go ahead okay it it is a film that just feels with all of Tarkovsky's films uh solaris excluded uh, they just feel so tactile and so real in a way that almost no other movies do and the the portrayal i almost want to say like the character of andre rublev is is secondary to that for me
2: though no, that although is, i yeah. think
1: i agree with you there
0: there's a lot of really great stuff to to dig in here about like the artistic process the the character of andre rublev i feel is there's a lot to dig in there there's a lot of depth whether or not you saw it is another thing but that's I uh discussion for another time. And it what I when I think of Andrei Rublev, I think of all like it feels mystical, like this this fantastical and yet really grounded real place. And it just it's moments and imageries and feelings I remember. Um and of course we'll have a much more detailed discussion on this yeah. at some point. But
1: but that's the thing is that Literally everything that you're saying about Andrei Rublev is how I felt about Stalker and how I wished I felt about Andrei Rublev. So, you know what it reminds me of is one that we briefly talked about recently. It reminds me a lot of Mishima, where mm. Mishima... I have the same issues where I I really appreciate the structure of this movie in that it's it's... I don't, I don't even want to call it a bio movie because it's not really about Andre Rublev. Andre Rublev is the the character, is the framing device for this specific time in history, which he uses to explore a lot of things. Um, the structure, it's not like A, B, C, D. It It's like eight chapters all in his life spanning years apart. And you get just these little, tiny little moments in his life that I feel like, are working towards something bigger, but it's the movie. Maybe it's that it's too dense for me because the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, okay, I got on pretty early by like chapter three that Andre Rublev isn't really the focus of the story. He's just there bringing this all together. But I just felt like every chapter was so dense with metaphor and ideas that I just was not picking up on. I had no idea what he was trying to say what it meant, what the focus was, because every chapter feels so different because it has different characters and it's a different time in his life where he's doing different things. And I just maybe I just didn't have enough time to process what it is before it moves on to the next one. And also, I feel like the... I don't know. I didn't understand a lot of what was happening. I didn't really get who is who and who's doing what and why. Like, when the 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 brother of the prince invades the town of Vladimir?
2: Mm.
1: It's the raid. It's the big yeah. raid in the building where he's burning and killing everybody. I'm like, okay, wait, who's this? Who's his brother? Who, the prince? Who? Oh, and then I realized later, okay, the prince is the person that wanted Andre, or not Andre, but the Greek, to paint the chapel. And there's just so much going on, and it's so tangentially related and connected and i never made those connections so i just was flustered by the whole thing
0: understandable and tarkovsky can do that i speak from personal experience and i hope this is going to be like how my experience with stalker where i was like yeah this is boring i don't know what you're trying (laughs) to do and then the second time i watched it i was like okay uh, this might just be the shit," (laughs) and it's great so i look forward to a second viewing and if you're there is i think perhaps i don't think you need some background information to know but it is helpful to yeah kind it's kind of just like have a, a general uh, brighter idea day. of the yeah it is a film that is almost a portrait of the russian uh consciousness collective consciousness of that people yeah of the kind of darkness and ter- turmoil that has led that has just pervaded that country for years and <laughs> the paganism and the christianity that kind of runs through all of that and how so much of it is founded on on this kind of eventual turn from paganism to greek orthodox christianity and how that also affects the national consciousness so it it is a portrait of Andrei Rublev but more so it is it is a film about the the history of Russia and kind of where this consciousness the idea of Russia comes from mm. uh from the perspective of someone making it under the USSR and all that and there's some there's definitely some background information about history the where Tarkovsky was when he was making it that makes it interesting Uh, but I'm not sure you need it Yeah, and I think even if you didn't have any of that upon a second viewing I have a
1: hunch you'll like it a little more but I'll definitely like it a little more as long as I understand what's going on I also think a huge issue was that I watched this an hour after I
2: watched Gone Girl (laughs) those are just completely different movies but yeah We'll get to it eventually. Uh,
1: should we get on to the big discussion? The big discussion. I'll redeem myself here. So. Our BFI movie of the week. <laughs> so we're doing something a little different here. <laughs> uh,
0: we, few weeks ago. No, no, like two months ago now. Three months it's ago. It's been a while. It's Time been is more than illusion. We talked about the Tatami Galaxy. Oh, okay. Uh, which is the first... Of I think an ongoing series of anime, uh like it's weird, like we're talking about super uh niche foreign films, and then every once in a while we just talk about these which anime is also funny series.
1: because neither of you are big anime watchers. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> I like it i like uh, it too we've I've, i i used to like i got into anime and i watched a bunch and then i i've kind of over time just like
1: okay i'm confident that we've seen a similar amount of anime yes and i i'm confident that it's similarly not that much
0: <laughs> five or six series probably at most i'm somewhere
1: around there i'm somewhere around
0: there yeah i think i've seen a little bit more than you have I, i'm sure I, you have. explored a little bit and then Stopped.
1: Yeah, well, it's funny because I'm not a huge anime person either, but some of my favorite movies are anime movies. And I think that's why. But yeah, this is this is our uh, podcast where we discuss the BFI movies and sometimes anime. It, for me,
0: it just feels strange in a great way. Like no, I, I love like like how it.
1: random it feels.
0: Like you're scrolling. I I just imagine someone who just found our podcast who knows nothing about us. They're scrolling through all these episodes about movies, like naked what's that topsy-turvy uh jaws Who i like jaws (laughs) i've heard of that movie the color of pomegranates what's that and then suddenly they they scroll down and they find ooh anime (laughs) or uh conversely i i am imagining like a real a big anime stan uh an otaku i think they're
1: referred to as (laughs) A weeb and is just and looking through it and then he's like, Army of Shadows, what's that?
0: Like <laughs> they, they they look up like, Oh, I want a review of the Tatami Galaxy, and then they find our podcast through that. Like, what the fuck is this? Well, this is not it's, for our if, typical if somehow audience.
1: we manage to make a weeb watch Gooby, I think we will have fulfilled our goal as a podcast. The goal of the podcast is <laughs> just a long con to get everyone to watch Gooby. <laughs> But yes, we're talking about Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood today. Yes. The 60-part anime series that is a sort of remake, but not really, of the original anime series from 2003. A little, a little uh, background uh, to
0: this is that the, the whole thing was written as a manga by Hiromu Arakawa and written by one person, this whole thing and then it was adapted i think she was like halfway through writing it and then the the original like 2003 show started airing and so uh, okay. it was kind of like a game of thrones scenario interesting where they eventually caught up with the material and started just making shit up on their own mm-hmm. i haven't seen uh, the 2003 i think i'm just pulling that somewhere else air. I haven't seen the that original Fullmetal Alchemist series, mostly because I just love Brotherhood so much <laughs> that I feel no need to expand upon that in any way. I'll get to it eventually, maybe. Uh, and then eventually, uh, a few years later, the manga was finished, and so uh, they decided, eh, let's uh, let's actually make this real and do the whole thing. And it's a fairly direct adaptation of that. Mm. Actually, it's a... Pretty much exact adaptation with many frames just lifted from the the manga,
1: and it's it's it pretty is accurate.
0: Expansive. Uh, what you
1: you cut out there for a second? I said it is expansive. Yes. Yes. So it is dense. Anime. This is also the
0: only anime ah. <laughs> <laughs> that I've ever read. Uh, this is how much I love it so much. Like, look, look,
1: look how many there are. Oh my god, there's so many. Yeah all right and uh. okay so then this is a full so brotherhood is a full like one-to-one creation of recreation of the manga as one-to-one as an adaptation can get okay. this is pretty. how expensive. much did that cost i'm curious i have no
0: idea this is actually the only thing i think i've ever imported <laughs> uh, and i didn't realize i was importing it when i bought it but it arrived in a royal mail bag so i think it came from the uk interesting it's very interesting yeah I'm trying to find like a frame that would be like just to illustrate how accurate it is, but that I could probably just sit here and waste too much time doing that. So anyway, what is, I'm curious as to how you would describe it. What is full metal alchemist brotherhood about?
1: Oh man. Uh, So what it's about, (sighs) I feel like the, the, the best way to get into it is the concept, which is this, it's this fantastical magical world that sort of has the iconography of like mid 20th century Europe, but it's kind also, of steampunk. Yeah. Kind not. of steampunk and futuristic, but mainly relying on the 20th. It's like between world war one and two, somewhere around there, European, vaguely European. Uh, and it's just a world where this thing called alchemy exists, which is a sort of magic. I don't know if they ever use the word magic, but it's a, it is a they call it a science. A science. okay. sorry. It is a technique, a scientific technique in which matter is cycled through. Uh, The idea is that you can't create or destroy matter. You can just sort of translate it across different planes of existence. That is alchemy. So you have people who can make like spears out of rocks and stuff like that. Uh, People who can just conjure fire. It's that. But I think what makes it better is that they somehow manage to take this very magical thing and apply it to a lot of realistic politics, because it's a very political show story. I mean,
0: it, it's very hard. It's to explain really hard it's to. It is <laughs> also tonally it's very hard to explain because you have it, it deals explicitly with like the ethics of of government killing of of uh, extermination of it's what's the uh, word I'm looking military for military
1: complex stuff like that yeah
0: it, it deals with some really heavy stuff and then at the same time you have a giant man who just pops out his muscles whenever he can <laughs> and it's that's the joke well, and it's funny
1: it's it's funny every time it's a movie or it's a show it's a show that like it has very realistic problems with indoctrination and genocide, but also the main villain is just a, it's an eyeball who wants to swallow God. Spoilers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But yes, an evil eyeball is at the center of it all. (laughs) Uh, But I feel like that's getting a little ahead of ourselves because so much, there's so much to the show. And it's, it's interesting that you mistakenly called it a movie. Because uh, it's most certainly not that, but it is no. also very much a contained narrative, much more so than many TV shows are.
1: There is a clear arc for just about everybody.
0: I, I was looking through the episodes and I think I can only point to one that is pretty much filler, or you could take it out and it wouldn't change. Much. Is it
1: the one where Honheim's by the fire?
0: That is technically <laughs> one. Although if you go back and watch it, you can find character information about Hohenheim that you don't get anywhere else in that episode. It's actually Miracle at Rush Valley, where they uh, stop and help uh, deliver the baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's in like the first season. It, it, it is the only inconsequential episode. But most, I'd say all of them pretty much lead. Like one episode ends and the next episode picks up almost immediately afterwards with the consequences of that and
1: the little character moments and micro conflicts have, they have ripple effects that carry on like three or four seasons later. Like they will be referencing things that happen like the first season or two that you'll forget about. But because the narrative as you know, it spans over five seasons, but the actual time frame of the plot is pretty short. Like even said, like you told me like the last season takes place over the course of one day and i thought that i was gonna they were gonna like you know really emphasize that framing device but they don't it just kind of everything just kind of keeps happening um but yeah it's, you wouldn't it's,
0: you don't necessarily realize it until later You're like oh wait that, that's that was just continuous action for like the last
1: because it's like a, 1100 minutes of anime but it all takes place over the course of like a year it's 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 very much like an A to B to C to D. It never stops. It never makes any crazy time jumps. It's one continuous. I don't want to say contained narrative because it does kind of go all over the place in good and bad ways. Um, But it is. It's a I don't even want to say efficient. It is. It's straightforward. It's straightforward. Not a lot of more so than most anime like compared to something like naruto or one piece that are like 600 episodes and still going this is which those are very much
0: episodic yes in nature and meant to be but even these are serial even something like cowboy bebop which i'm sure i will be making uh comparisons to that every once in a while but like that cowboy bebop is a it has a through-line narrative but it is a very much an episodic. Yeah,
1: deal. Well, Cowboy Bebop, I find when it gets serialized or they they hint at an overarching story, that's where it's least interesting. I much prefer the episodic structure. But this, that's why you can watch like nine or ten episodes of this in like one sitting, because it leads directly into the next thing. There's always something happening. But I feel like what we have to talk about. The reason it's very complicated, it's messy, it's big, it's expansive, but the reason it works is because every fucking character is amazing in this. All of them. I can't think of a single bad character in this entire show, which is crazy because the cast is huge.
2: Huge,
1: huge, absolutely ginormous. I I can think of maybe
0: one named character who doesn't appear in more than one episode, and that's Slicer. Who? from <laughs> i mean now you're I, i'm just gonna show off this episode of how Let's many, find you've read the I've manga
1: i'm sure you've watched the whole series multiple times i've seen it once
0: when they uh in the first season when they explore the fifth laboratory the third fourth is it the, the lab- girl and they meet barry the chopper and slicer the two oh hollow headed yes 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 and Barry Barry appears in many episodes. He's great, <laughs> uh, Slicer gets gets killed uh, quite efficiently.
1: Oh, he's the samurai looking one. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I remember now.
0: But even like some throwaway characters in the the first season, which is it's kind of artificially created. They're not really. It's not even really. Yeah. Uh, divided up into seasons all that uh, uh, definitively, but the first season is the most episodic sort of 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 the whole thing. The, yeah, especially the last two are just I'm I'm full pulling, on full I'm steam just, ahead.
1: I'm telling this now I'm pulling up the list of characters.
0: The <laughs> the second episode feels very episodic when you watch it the first time, which is with uh, the story of Father Cornello, where uh, the two main characters, by the way, Ellen Alphonse, the brothers, it's mm-hmm. the title brotherhood. Uh, they travel. They're looking for the Philosopher's Stone uh, to heal themselves. And they travel to uh, Lior, where there's this priest guy who is doing miracles. And they think, maybe it's the Philosopher's Stone that's helping him out. And this whole episode, it feels very self-contained. And you feel like, oh, we're done with Father Cornello. But you technically don't meet him again because he dies. Spoiler alert, second episode. (laughs) I don't think that matters. Uh, He technically reappears. And the actions and the consequences of that episode have reoccurring. It is information that you need. Going forward in the story, which is important. Yes. Very interconnected. I, before we, we're getting very much into the nitty gritty. So I just kind of want to, before we get into uh, gushing about some of the characters. What do you like overall think? You, you finished it a few days ago. Yes, I um, did.
1: What were your thoughts? I'm doing this right now while you're here. I, I had the review posted as the day after I finished it. And I'm just going to go ahead and formally put it to five stars right there. Full five. Full five. It's great. Here's the thing. This is the second time that this has happened to me where Jacob suggests something. I take forever to get to it. And when I finally finish it, I just have this huge gaping hole in me that after I'm done where I'm like, what do I do now? Happened with Twin Peaks. Now it happened with Full Metal Alchemist. It I'm not going to say it's a perfect show because like Twin Peaks, it doesn't there's some stuff that you're just like, why is this in here? There's a lot of plot contrivances. Like, I feel like, especially towards the end, where you can kind of feel like she's trying to juggle all of these things going on at once, they'll introduce weird plot elements or plot devices or new abilities that sort of magically solve whatever problem is happening at the moment. But it never bothers me because the show is consistently. I say this word ironically and not a lot, but I mean it for real this time. It's epic. Uh, It's the action is amazing. It's funny. It's sad. It's kind of horrific. It's kind of romantic. Uh, Every character adds something different to it. And I love it. It's great. I love it. I'm a fan. After I finished it, I couldn't watch anything for like a day and a half because I'm like, I just, I feel like a part of me is over. I want to do that all again. And I have to mention, uh, we should not mention that I mistakenly watched the Japanese dub or the, the, the original, I guess, the sub. Because when I played it on Netflix, that is what played by default. Which is
0: interesting because I th- thought I'm pretty sure at some point I mentioned it, although it might have. I'm sure you just did. Buried to the point where you didn't remember it.
1: But it literally was on episode 59 in the credits where I'm looking at the English voice actors and I'm like, where the fuck did they come from? And then uh, I realized that I could have switched it to English this whole time.
0: Do you remember? I know specifically I told you this because uh, I, I thought you were watching English. I just assumed, mm-hmm. uh, but I assumed too much. <laughs> the, uh, the, the voice actor for Colonel Mustang and Lust. I remember telling you over text that they are married in real life. You might not remember this, but
1: I know I do remember that because I thought you meant the Japanese voice actors.
0: I don't. I meant the English voice actors, which now, whenever you you go back and rewatch that scene, tell you why. I won't tell the audience what happens in this specific scene, but they they are characters that are at odds with one another, and Mustang and Lust, and it's just fun to know that they're married <laughs> in real life, at least with the English voice actors.
1: The, the Japanese voice acting is great, though. I don't want to make it sound like it was a chore because it's actually amazing. So many I went back so and good. watched
0: a couple episodes uh, with the, uh, the Japanese voice acting because I don't think I I've seen it once with the, uh, the Japanese and it, it's been a while. Yeah, uh, most I'm like very much the, the show in my mind is in English. So I just needed to go back and kind of refresh my memory as to what some of them sounded like
1: yeah. and the feeling, because it does give off a slightly different feeling. when it's It Japanese. Does. But. but I'll go back and watch this in English. But yeah, the biggest ones for me, the best as far as the best Japanese voice actors go, uh, I, both of the uh, Elric brothers are great in Japanese. I thought the, the voice actors for Envy was amazing in the Japanese version. Uh, Roy Mustangs too and as much as I love Roy Mustangs in English I actually prefer his in Japanese because there's a sort of like boyish quality to the Japanese voice actors performance that I think Mm -hmm. reflects the kind of character of Roy Mustang and both the English and Japanese voice actor for I'm going to spoil it and just say my favorite character General Armstrong are great Major General
0: Alex Louise Armstrong.
1: In a cast of many great characters, he is my favorite. (laughs) And he's the, I mean, I'm not gonna say he's the least deep because he is deep. And it's funny because even the moments of death are just funny to me because when you flash back to the Ishvalan War Armstrong where he looks the same but he doesn't have a mustache (laughs) makes him look dumber.
0: He's just a large man. He's Uh, a very large man. He's the butt of the joke most of the time. (laughs) And it it works because he's just giant and i I wrote down one where winry arrives in central winry is the the childhood friend of ed and al and she in this world there's automail so if you lose a limb you can get a uh automail prosthetic to replace that limb Mm -hmm. and she is an automail engineer and she's coming to central to uh, help ed with his broken arm and she's like okay i'm looking for someone ed told me it'd be someone i would i would recognize instantly <laughs> and then it cuts to just a panning shot of of a crowd a massive crowd and it's just our uh alex louise armstrong just hovering in the back just <laughs> giant over everyone and the way like whenever it shows him there's like a little like ding and like a little star by like
1: yeah and just isn't.
0: playing into the yeah. fact that he's so big and manly and, and he rough, has the best funny moment of the
1: entire show when he teams up with sig a great payoff
0: the, the whole joke just uh, comes to fruition there. it's
1: it's the answer to the the eternal question what happens when an immovable object <laughs> meets an unstoppable force because i think everyone in the back of your mind when you see both armstrong and sig curtis you're like oh these two have to meet at some point point," and when they do it is literally worlds colliding it's great
0: it's interesting. I've, I went out of my way kind of to look at some of the criticism of Brotherhood, which surprisingly there is very little. Uh, it yeah, is, I, I
1: read a bunch of the negative Letterboxd reviews. I was curious.
0: It's one of the highest rated things on Letterboxd, on MyAnime, IMDb. Uh, it, glowing reviews. Most people love it because it is just a very charming thing. Uh, some, I don't remember who, I'm not going to, doesn't matter. Someone said, like, they didn't care for the humor and sometimes the humor, uh, like, it didn't balance the tones correctly of those two things. And I'm not going to disagree, but I am. (laughs) Because (laughs) I think there is, there are one or two moments where it kind of shifts the tones a little too quickly. Yeah. But it's never in places that matter and particularly near the end. Some of the criticisms I read and I'm like, did you watch the whole thing? Because I feel like you didn't. And near the end, there's almost no, nothing is interrupted for a joke near the
1: end. No, like the last season and a half is very dour. There,
0: there's no serious moment that is interrupted. There, oh, okay. Sometimes it's, in the beginning.
1: Yeah, but also that's also when Armstrong and Curtis and that's like one of the funniest moments. Yes,
0: but that wasn't like a serious, no, emotional, no. dramatic moment no. that preceded it. And the, there's someone said like, they didn't, the joke about uh, Ed... Not drinking his milk wasn't funny to them. Cool. I can I can get how like that might not be funny to you. How it's constantly brought up that Ed hates milk, uh, <laughs> and that's why he's short. I find this funny, but they also claim that it was pointless, which it most certainly is not no. because that joke itself has an arc throughout the series, especially when he fights um, Salim,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is like the dumb stuff has. There's there's points to it, not all of it, but stuff like that, that there's a reoccurring joke and that has meaningful payoff at the end. And same with the uh, Armstrong. It's not meaningful payoff, but it's fun payoff. So ah. that's that's me responding to that particular. Criticism. I mean, yeah,
1: there's also just like comedic characters, too. So like there's some characters I always I can't remember his name. Yoki. <laughs> Like his purpose probably the
0: the dumbest character in the show, but still
1: he I like him, but uh he he just leaves the show like in the end, um he is the last time you see him is right before um Bradley returns because Bradley like walks behind uh uh Alphonse and Yoki in one of the chimeras as they're like trying to move a car and that's literally the last time you see Yoki and it's not even like a full on face it's just from behind. Until you see him in the end credits, he's in a circus, I guess.
0: Yeah. I think the,
1: correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't, I didn't
0: watch the whole thing over again. Um, Sheska, the, the librarian, I think she drops off. She's one of the only other oh, named yeah. characters yeah. who appears in multiple episodes that doesn't make a return in the finale, which it it's hard to to give everyone.
1: That's the thing, is that there's a lot of, just completely dropped subplots and characters, but they're doing so much and juggling so many characters. And I'm just amazed at how many of these characters actually work that I don't care if some of them don't. And that's why I think there's so little to say as far as like criticisms about it and why it's so lauded and highly rated is because I feel like there are so many, if you were to just shift the focus to any one of these characters, it becomes a completely different story. You have so many different relationship dynamics and goals and like objectives between all these different characters that there is something that you're going to like regardless. Like I think my favorite part of the my favorite like relationship in the entire like series is um uh, Mustang and Hawkeye mm-hmm. are kind of my favorite <laughs> like character dynamics. I love those two. And just even if you if, if it wasn't about the Elric brothers and it was just about those two, that is a completely different story. But it is equally as engaging because they have throughout the course of this whole show, they go through this one big arc. These things, Mustangs like Quest for Power and Hake is sort of like um, uh, coming to terms with what she did in the Ishvalin War. All that stuff is interesting. And everybody gets something like that. And it's all like it's sprinkled in, like you never get too much. It's never... It's you never soon. go through the show and like, oh, this is a Winry episode or this is a Mustang episode. It's constantly happening all the time.
0: One episode, the there's only one episode that is like, oh, that is that episode, and it's oh, that's Hohenheim's backstory episode. Yeah, okay, yeah, and that's the only time the 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 show takes a specific diversion towards one
1: character. Yeah. The, is that the same episode where he's around the fire? No, that's just like a recap no. episode. Did you talk about the one where we? See the origin of Dwarf in the bottle homunculus.: Yeah, okay. Yeah. But even then, that's like, you get the entire context for this whole conflict in one episode, so it's fine, I get it.
0: And like it waits it waits till season four to give you <laughs> yeah the, the the critical like Baxter, like to explain. It, it is a really well-paced thing. I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, that that's like one of my big, biggest selling points. Is it over like 73 episodes? It's so the information, the way it kind of doles out, tells you about the world, about the characters, about the plot is so well doled out throughout the entire thing. Like there's so many like moving elements that you like when you think about how you, you are slowly introduced to the villains. You don't actually meet the main villain until the beginning of season three. And then you don't actually get important key backstory until season four. You don't actually even really know what the main villain is trying to do until he does it. Spoiler <laughs> alert.
1: God, Yeah, but it's funny because the beginning of this series, like the first two seasons, they're kind of similar to Cowboy Bebop where it's serialized in general, but they have episodic little like A- B- uh, beginning, middle, end stories within these episodes. It's still a one big story, but in the, in the beginning, when the focus is more about them getting their bodies back, there are little like the episode with the girl and the dog, the famous one, whatever. Oh, yeah. Uh, the episode where they have to stop that, like, priest who's taking control over the oh, town yeah. or whatever. Then There's the episode where Hughes gets murdered. They have those little episodic things. So, well, all sorry. That happens at the beginning. That, uh, that's another one of those things. <laughs> also, where, but it's a spoiler. It's, yeah, no, you're right. Um, One of those things, uh, quick side note is that you know how when you you finally see something that you've been wanting to see for a long time and you just start to see references to it that you didn't realize a reference to it before, whatever. Mm-hmm. I've seen that like video, the bad day for rain video so many times. And I, I, I remember it so fondly because I think I didn't even know what this was and I knew it was a great little scene. And I wish you could have seen my face when I realized that that was in this show. Because I'm like, he really does look familiar. And then they have the funeral. I'm like, oh, God, is this it? And then it happens. And I'm like, <laughs> oh,
0: this is it. I'm glad we're, we're talking about Colonel Hughes because R.I.P. But he is. Yeah. He's like the wholesome heart of the show that has to get killed off in order to like move the plot
1: into, uh, into gear. But that's the thing is you never feel like his death. They forget about it. Like, the two things that come up a lot are Hughes and the girl. The girl and the dog. That shit comes up a lot. Hughes's death
0: kind of gets resolved in the second episode of season five. Where Envy is eliminated. <laughs>
2: eliminated.
0: <laughs> and doesn't... Like, that's kind of the, the end result of that being tied off. And But, girl and her dog, Alexander, and... Olivia, Alexander's the dog. Oh, no, the girl and her dog. No, I'm, I can't continue. I'm sorry.
1: Also, quick side note, we should mention that one of the things that I think really helps this is that the the breaks in each episode are just title cards with various characters, which I enjoy. I enjoy that. Whenever it goes like a commercial break and they just go full metal alchemist and they'll show you like a picture. Mina, of somebody.
0: that's it. Alexander and Nina. Oh, OK. She gets mentioned very briefly. You have to be listening for it, but she does get mentioned in the second to last episode. Okay, so that that as the third episode of the series gets, it's a full full story element all the way through the end of the show.
1: So okay, I said my it's it's really hard to pick favorite characters because they're all great. My, my single like favorite character is probably Alex Louis Armstrong. Uh, my favorite like relationship is Mustang and Hawkeye. They're my other favorite characters, but I also really love uh, Izumi Curtis. She's also one of my favorites. Her, her and Sig just have the most wholesome relationship. I it's think it's
0: relationship goals.
1: It's just cute. It's cute.
0: It's kind of a stupid joke, but I, it never fails to make me laugh where Izumi Curtis is just saying something. And then she stops her sentence and goes, it's just vomits <laughs> copious amounts of blood. It just never fails to make me laugh. Uh,
1: okay, so then who is your single favorite character? If you had to pick one. If I had to pick one. That's why I said reluctantly, Alex Armstrong, but I think in my heart it's actually Roy or maybe Izumi or maybe Ling, who I also love. Might be Ling. I love Hohenheim. Hohenheim had the best, like, turn i don't even know if it was a turn it was just a different perspective because he seems like the villain from the beginning of the show but towards the end you kind of really understand who he is and he's just a goofy dad and spoiler alert his his ending scene got me that was just ugh, that was hard to watch not hard to watch but like
0: euphoric i guess there are multiple moments in this show where i get visibly emotional i don't when i'm watching it like i'm just like picking out episodes or moments like I'm just scrubbing through. It doesn't necessarily affect me, but as if I'm watching it like end to end, there are certain things that get me and Hohenheim. The end? The end when he dies. I think you could say another interesting, an interesting criticism, which I think is not incorrect, but it is incorrect uh, (laughs) from uh, content wise. It's not incorrect, but the reaction wise, which is Ed doesn't actually do all that much, which I'm like sure, but that's the point. Like, think of um, think of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Yeah, the point of that is that everyone has a part to play in defeating Voldemort. This is very much a much more natural, which that has its own issues, but this is a much more natural uh, expression of that idea. In that everyone has something to do to achieve victory in this scenario which is like no each homunculus is killed by someone different no one no one gets one single like moment of like oh you're you're the hero but there is one hero and it's hohenheim who is technically technically the the background hero to the whole thing yeah and is the reason why they succeed in the end which is why he gets uh he gets his own little montage to send him out at the end of that episode.
1: <laughs> I do just purely visual, I do enjoy the visual of Hohenheim working at a soup kitchen that always gets me he has a little bandana on <laughs> <laughs> that's fun
0: fun time, but it, that's another example of really interesting story development and pacing in that Hohenheim has developed. You start the the show thinking that he's kind of like the shitty dad. Mm -hmm. And then the show goes on as like he he might actually be not just a shitty dad, but he might be the villain of of the whole plot. He might be behind everything. And then the show goes on even more, and you realize that he actually has an extremely tragic backstory, and that he is actively working against these forces in this country. And it just it, it develops.
1: Well, yeah, I'm just okay. So I'm just looking at the the list of characters, and yeah, that's the thing is that like every single character, they're almost introduced one way, and then they turned out to be a completely different way. Just about everyone, from like Curtis to Salim to Envy to even Kimberly gets a random ass <laughs> redemption arc out of nowhere. Kimberly's
0: great. Like, <laughs> speaking, <laughs> I'm gonna go back to well pay stuff you see kimberly three times in jail before you actually he actually becomes a yeah. an important figure in the plot
1: kimberly is cartoonishly evil and that's why i like him
0: that's that's what he's there to do he's he's there to be the just mustache twirling
1: i mean he doesn't have a mustache but yeah, well you know. he he is the most mustache twirly of all of them even though i guess yeah bradley's got the best mustache like, literally all of them. Even Greed, who I think has one of my favorite arcs at the end. Greed is the most lovable of the shitheads.
0: Uh, another moment I get. Uh, ext- like, like very happy. Very, very happy at. But also sad. Is Greed's death. Yeah! And he realizes, hey, yeah, I just wanted friends. He's, just he's so wholesome. Wholesome in his shitty way. <laughs> in In a show where... Uh, the main villain is trying to literally uh, murder a country of 50 million people you know you just have wholesome moments where someone just realizes they just need friends (laughs) they just wanted friends the whole time and the fact that that works is wonderful
1: I, I love that Greed is like he's under the impression that everybody's working for him and no one really thinks that that's fun I think the only like as far as characters go I don't even want to say I have complaints about these characters but the two sets of chimera chimeras i feel like they're kind of redundant they have there's like literally two sets of chimera henchmen turn good guys two different pairs of them yeah i know what you mean and i know they they all feel different but like it literally feels like a copy and paste character and character arc that they have that's about as far as i can go for complaints
0: i I understand that and i think i would agree with you but it's also not much of a complaint because they're very they're minor characters, yeah. Exactly. We're getting
1: background arcs, uh, you know. It's again, there's like a bunch of little things that you can point to, but it, as far as like what they managed to achieve in j- a relatively short amount of episodes, I can't fault it. Like, I feel like a lot of the guys from season one and two, like Kane Fury and Vado Fallman, all those like people, like at the beginning, I think it's the end of season two where a lot of Roy Mustang's guys get sent to different areas around. Yeah, and that you kind of like lose track of who's who and who wants what. But towards the end, and I got to say this, another Lord of the Rings comparison, because the last episode is so it's Return of the King levels, beautiful conclusions to everything because it's never a cut and dry. This is what happens. You kind of see where they're headed.
0: It's like and the story goes on.
1: Yeah, they're trying to pitch you like 30 different spin-off shows because I'm like, oh, now I want to see Scar go save Ishvalen or whatever. Now I want to see Alphonse go with the two other chimeras. Now I want to see the uh, Winry Eric sitcom, stuff like that with him, no alchemy powers. And they just allude to a lot without definitively stating. I think one of the best moments, like as far as not concrete conclusions, but just enough is when I don't remember his name. But he's the soldier of Roy Mustangs that loses his legs. Havoc. Jean Havoc. Yeah, Jean Havoc. Where we know what's going to happen in that great little scene where you don't even see his face. He just gets a call from Roy's working at a little general store. And he says, you need you in Central. A while, I'll explain when you get there. You don't know. You don't know. You don't see what happens. But it's a nice little bit of closure. I just have to bring up uh, whenever I think
0: of uh, Jean Havoc uh, in the moment where one of the the best episodes of the series, season two, episode six, Death of the Undying, it, when they go down and confront Lust, Gene and Mustang are confronting Lust in the underground laboratory. It, it's revealed that Lust was posing as his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And Mustang says, Well, you've always been a sucker for big boobs. And then Gene Havoc was like, I know, I just love them. <laughs> and then it goes into like that super stylized anime, and it's just. <laughs> so over the top well it's great <laughs> but yeah they they are background characters but they do they come up like throughout the the narrative and you kind of lose them when they get sent off i feel like that's kind of the point uh, yeah cuz your your anchor character is mustang it's not necessarily them uh, but they do come back uh, during the siege of central
1: it's almost like uh, those characters get replaced with Olivier and her soldiers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because, you know, people come and go and I understand why, because you can't you can't consistently be keeping track of all these characters at the same time, because as the show goes on, you get more and more and more. And if you were to hold on to every character by like season five, nothing would get done because you constantly be having to remind other people of these characters. And, you know, even the characters that they just forget about, they come back in the end and they get a little closing arc and can't complain. And there's again, like yeah. I I'm looking at all these characters and I can't see a single one I don't like. Yeah, none. I mean I will agree that like Frodo, Edward is kind of comparatively the mo- the least interesting. But man, at the end, you know, him and Winry outside that train station, that gets me. That's cute. That gets me. The end is great. Yeah. Buccaneer. Lan Fon, all of Ling's guys. So
0: Here's my question. We are. I feel that the spoiler warning has already been long. Yes. uh Given. Well, yeah. no, no, we're officially I'm going to ask. I am personally curious uh, about your reaction to the. I'll call it the the climactic four episodes where. Like, what was your reaction when when essentially father wins?
1: OK, that you know how I told you that there's like. A lot of times that this show just sort of introduces new plot devices or new techniques to kind of get themselves out of a bind. When Mm -hmm. father wins, I'm thinking, okay, there's no way that that's just how the show ends. And then when Hohenheim starts talking about his reverse transmutation circle, that's like the biggest example of but writing, you know, this, but this and this and this or whatever. Where it sort of feels like it comes out of nowhere. It's not necessarily. And I don't even necessarily understand what he did. It is
0: technically set up. You do see Hohenheim. Yeah. It, traveling and putting his his philosopher's stone throughout the, the country. You don't know what he's did doing. It did not
1: feel yeah. out of nowhere. But it wasn't necessarily the most satisfying counter to this conflict. Um, but I do think the the. I don't know it's not the best implemented or the best written, like dire consequences, but the emotions that you feel when it does happen is enough. Because you know, you see everybody tertiary characters that you haven't seen in a long time, we cut to them like dying. It's effective. Um, it's a lot better than something like you know, Thanos winning, and the way that they fix it is by time travel. It's comparable, it's similar yeah. in that regard. Um I think the stakes feel big enough for what it what it needs to do is raise the stakes even more. It accomplishes that. You can argue how effectively and efficiently it does it. It doesn't do it so poorly that it bothers me, but it's not perfect by any means. It definitely ups the stakes and makes the the last battle a lot more. I don't know, personal, I guess. Just everybody shitting on father. It's a great little band together moment. And I think that's the important part.
0: Actually, I was looking, I was thinking like, okay, how do I put all of this into like, because there's mini arcs throughout the, the whole series. Like, how many of these mini arcs are there? And there's, there's about 15 of them. And I was like, what do I call this mini arc? Well, I'm going to call it Endgame, obviously. <laughs> what else do you call it? It feels very much like uh kind of like Infinity War and Endgame, except better, but you know, that's just yeah. me. Uh, I agree. I don't know how much you've you've looked into or read about the the series, but did you did you pick up on the the ironic deaths of the homunculi? No. So, Sloth dies because he's too lazy to lift himself off of the spike. Lust dies at the hands of a hot guy. Gluttony <laughs> dies by being eaten himself. Envy dies because, gluttony? because envy. Gluttony's the big fat one, the dumb one. No, but who who kills him? Winnie the Pooh. Oh, pride. Pride eats him.
2: Oh, okay, yeah.
0: Envy is uh, realizes how much uh, he actually wants to be like a human, so commits suicide. Uh, pride is defeated when he gives up his pride and tries to take. human form wrath dies peacefully and greed dies having finally understood and at peace with his own desires yeah also doing a selfless act
1: yeah yeah uh wait hold on are you saying the guy who voices gluttony in the english version is the guy who voices winnie the pooh
0: (laughs) no no it's just the character looks (laughs) like a giant evil winnie the pooh
1: no he does he does I was about to say that that alone might get me to watch the English version. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of things like that, that if I, you know, watching it again, knowing where it goes, I can pick up on it. But yeah, it's it's neat. I love all the homunculi. Yeah, they're great. Although the one that I th- the one homunculus that borders on annoying is gluttony. I'll say that. Gl- gluttony's dumb, which is the point, kind of. He's dumb. His dev- design's dumb. Oh, um, I, I like him. Another thing that this sh- this show does great is that it, it managed to be horrifying at points. Like there's some genuine creepy body horror in this. And one of them, like when gluttony turns into a big mouth in his stomach, that's terrifying. Um, But I think the thing that always gets me is um, Envy's beast form where it's just comprised of like the screaming souls that make up her philosopher's stone. It's just, Oh, I don't know what else to say. I feel like I've said everything I can
0: my my summarization of why Full Metal Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood is probably if I were to put it on my favorite movies list. Which I won't. And if I do that, I also have to put uh, Twin Peaks on there. So <laughs> it, it, it okay. opens up a <laughs> yeah, a portal. of, I, of I,
1: I was just about to say Full Metal Alchemist shouldn't count, but I do have Twin Peaks is like my number four, so.
0: Which is fine, I mean it's it's entirely personal preferences to like yeah you, know, you want that, but it, it, if I were to put it like ranking TV shows and movies all together, it, it's most certainly in my top five favorite things of, of all time, media storytelling stuff, mostly because it is it, it feels dark and mature, but it is, also has the wholesomeness of Paddington 2 at times, <laughs> and the fact that it works. While juggling such uh, disparate elements is it it never ceases to not work for me. Whenever I watch the the show all the way through, I I am always getting emotionally invested in it.
1: Uh, As somebody who writes a good amount, I just don't even understand how somebody could do this. Like, I don't know how they go from episode to episode, keeping in mind all the different characters and their goals and their uh, care. It just amazes me.
0: I once wrote an essay for, uh, a, I think the only like advanced English class I took in college, but we, the final for that class was to write an essay about a research topic that we had. And I was, uh, writing about, it wasn't urban development. It was anyway, it was a complex to- topic that I didn't have that much experience about and mm the whole thing was like researching it enough to kind of put together all these different, different pieces. And that's the closest Mm -hmm. I've ever felt to like putting together something that's as interconnected as this, because I was literally on the floor of my room with index cards, just trying to map it all out. And it took me so long to figure out how to like organize all this information I had into a coherent written form. And so I feel like the the author must've just had like massive, like a, a, spreadsheets or like a a a board with like thumbtacks and strings okay this person's going there and then there and like you'd walk in on the writing process and it seems like a crazy person is is working here but it works all at the end
1: yeah that's the most impressive part it's a gigantic wave of catharsis is the final episode no unanswered questions
0: which you know it it you could say it's wrapped up a little too perfectly some of the characters are a little too like there's no some of the characters are too perfect, too nice, too outgoing, too giving. But I mean, screw you. That's perfectly acceptable as a character. Well, it's f- it's f- uh, that's it's what it's going
2: for.
1: Yeah. It's fine because I mean, everyone who's even slightly evil is dead <laughs> by the end of the show. I mean, the only two living bad guys, the generals, that get put to jail. So it it's believable to me that at least for like a year, the world is going to be perfect on a on a macro level. It'd be nice. I'm sure they'll fuck it up in a few months. It is idealism,
0: but that like that's the place for it. Like it's one thing where like if you were talking about the real world, about politics and all that, and you had. You tried to pitch the ending of the show as like a real life scenario. Like, the fuck are you talking about? That's, that's so unrealistic. But if there's anywhere where you can have that kind of catharsis of like a political system that's so fucked up coming together to actually turn into something good at the end, why not here? Why not in a TV show? It earns it. It creates that scenario through interesting characters. And, you know, Mm. sure. I guess if you don't like happy things, yeah, Go watch Stalker again. Why not? Leave me alone. Don't give it bad <laughs> reviews.
1: Stalker. That's that's your go-to for depressing. That's funny. So does it deserve to be on the BFI list?
0: <laughs> no, but it's it's great.
1: Yeah, it's first anime on the BFI list. <laughs> It'd probably be Cowboy Bebop if we're being honest. I'm making but. the formal request that the 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 thumbnail for this episode has to be Armstrong. It has to be i'll do something funny
0: i'll do armstrong and then i'll find some clip of a character like looking funny like looking in that direction like if armstrong's on the top of the thing like something i'll do something i'll I'll, believe me i'll do my research for this but yeah it's it's a story about friendship and it's fun it's campy it's got great action it can be a little dumb but that's kind of that's the charm uh, it's very anime it's got the tropes like visually it does strange things sometimes but it, it is narrative over form like if if ever there was something where like the narrative and the characters are so great you don't even if you don't like anime i think you could potentially get into this one and that i think a lot of people have said that before
1: but oh let's let's also just Point out that animeisms. There's some bad ones, like random hypersexualizations, um, the anime reaction sound, which is something that I fucking hate. Where characters they they react like normal human beings do, but they make this weird little gasping sound when they do, which is just weird. But also, there's some great food, so that's a solid
2: animeism. Lastly, it's philosophical, so. Yeah, well, there's that. He does swallow God.